You are now listening to Theology Applied, a podcast of Eternal City Church, where theology walks the pavement. Today starts a new series on soteriology, or the study of salvation. We'll be talking specifically about election and predestination. I hope you'll enjoy as we progress through the Ordo Salutis, or the order of salvation. Welcome to another episode of Theology Applied. And today we're going to do a first of many episodes on soteriology. Now, soteriology uh, comes from Titus 2.11 and other passages. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That word there, salvation, in Titus 2.11 is soterios, which we get soteriology from, meaning the study of salvation. Ology, or, or, or logi rather, is the science or body of knowledge. You could think of it as the study of. So soterios, study of salvation. Uh, and we're going to talk for many episodes about what's called in Latin the Ordo Salutis, or the order of salvation, starting from eternity past into eternity future. So today, uh, I'm going to list the Ordo Salutis, and then we're just going to take the first two. So the Ordo Salutis, at least from a Reformed or Biblical perspective, is this, predestination, election, calling, regeneration, faith, repentance, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. We're just going to take the first two today, uh, eternity past, predestination, and election. Predestination is God's deciding the destination or the end of something before it happens to foreordain it or to predetermine it, God's eternal decrees. Uh, A dictionary definition is God's foreordination of persons to a particular end, most commonly to a particular eternal destiny and less commonly to a particular vocation or a particular task. Another helpful definition of predestination is this. God has sovereignly and graciously planned for the unfolding of history and of all things. It is more commonly known, according to a narrow definition, that God has decreed either the final salvation or the final reprobation of each person. Election and reprobation, then, are subcategories of the doctrine of predestination. So predestination, you could say, is God's foreordaining all things before they take place. This, this looks like prophecy in the Old Testament. He has planned what will take place. He tells about it before it takes place. And as it unfolds, it fulfills his predetermined purpose or predestining. We're going to talk about election as a subcategory of predestination. And as we'll get into later in the podcast, election has two sides. It has a positive side and a negative side. And so we'll get into that as we go. One of the clearest places to see the election positively of individuals is Ephesians 1, 5, I'm sorry, 3 through 5 and verse 11. I will read those now. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us. In him, that him is Jesus, so God the Father chooses individuals in Christ, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before Genesis 1, 
God chose people in Jesus to be his, to be his people, to be his children. That, so this is in order that, we should be holy and blameless before him. So that the end goal of God's predetermining the destination of the elect to come to him would be that we, those who are Christians, the predestined ones, would be holy and blameless before him. That's the end. In love, he predestined us for adoption. So in love, in Christ, God predetermines our destiny and the the destination would be we would be adopted to God the Father himself. Adopted to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. You'll notice that in him being Jesus, through Jesus Christ, Jesus is absolutely essential to this doctrine of election or the teaching of election in the Bible. According to the purpose of his will. Now we talked about God's will in a previous podcast and God has an eternal decree, his decretive will, his sovereign will, his secret will. And this is the fulfilling of his secret will, his sovereign will, his elect coming to belief in Christ and through Christ. In him, we have have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so this verse 11 here says that God is the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will, even the salvation and the non-salvation or the reprobation of all people. Now, election would be the choosing of individuals to salvation out of the mass of fallen humanity. And that's important. God chooses to save some, but in order to save them, they need saved from something. And so what do they need saved from? They need saved from sin. Uh, Sin is presupposed, if you will, in election, because you can't be saved from something if there's nothing to be saved from. And so election is God's choosing of the individuals to salvation out of the mass of fallen humanity. You have this, this, if you will, lump of mass fallen individuals, and God says, I will save some out of this mass of already fallen people. Now, Acts 13, 48, uh, the context here is Paul and Barnabas. They're in Antioch of Pisidia, and this is a Gentile region. And Paul's general strategy for mission is he goes into a synagogue and he uh, opens up the Old Testament and he shows that Jesus is the Christ and that our duty is to repent of our sins and believe in him for salvation. Well, he does this. And the the Jews in Antioch of Pisidia are so intrigued. They say, we want to hear you again on this next Sabbath. And so all of the whole city hears about this, the Gentiles included. And they come and the Jews look around and they see this massive crowd ready to hear Paul and Barnabas and they're offended. And so they begin to speak against what Paul is speaking of, Jesus as the Christ fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. And so we read in verse 42, Acts 13, 42, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And as I said, the next Sabbath came, the the whole city gathers, the Jews are jealous, so they begin to speak against Paul. And so Paul says, okay, well, we're going to go then to the Gentiles. Since you reject the Messiah, we are now going to go to the Gentiles. And then he speaks to the Gentiles, the gospel, and this is what we read in verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, 
they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is the gospel. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Meaning only those ones who were predetermined, who were appointed to eternal life believed. Notice it doesn't say the opposite. It doesn't say as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. No, the text clearly says as many as were appointed, those ones believed and they received eternal life. Now, as I said, there's positive election and we just kind of opened that up with Ephesians 1 and with Acts 13, 48. There's many texts, many, many texts. We could spend hours going through the Bible's uh, description and account of how predestination positively works. Here's one place that troubles many people on negative election. So this would be called reprobation. And this is in Romans 9. And I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'm just going to do verse 11 and 12 with Jacob and Esau, Isaac's two sons. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Romans 9, 11 says this, though they were not yet born, so pre their birth, and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she, Rebecca, their mother, was told, the older will serve the younger. So Paul pulls out this illustration that happened with Jacob and Esau, and it's he's not so much talking about the eternal destiny here of Jacob and Esau, but rather he's talking about God's purpose in predestining that Jacob will be the one that God works through uh, and eventually brings the Messiah. And because God did not choose Esau, therefore he rejected him. And it was God's choice that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, not because of him or, or because of him who calls. So the idea of Paul emphasizing before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, God's choice is what matters in this case, that Jacob was chosen and not Esau. So he's arguing here that it's God's choice and it's unconditional and that there was no conditions in Jacob or Esau that affected God's choice. God was freely choosing because he wanted to Jacob and not Esau. Then he continues in Romans 9, 14 to 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Now, this verse 14 here shows us that when you clearly lay out a biblical case for election and reprobation, most people's response is, well, that's not fair. Okay. And Paul anticipates this argument here. And he says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is there fairness on God's part or, or not fairness? And, and so he says, by no means. No God is not unjust. No God is not being unfair. And then he's going to argue for that in verse 15 and forward. But we know that we're onto something if when you explain unconditional election and people say, well, that's not fair or, or that's unjust, you know that you're on the right track because Paul anticipates that argument in the text itself. Romans 9, 14, verse 15, for he says to Moses, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now, Moses is, is uh, being told by God, you're going to have this confrontation with Pharaoh and 
I'm going to get power and glory over Pharaoh for opposing me and for enslaving my people and treating them harshly. And God declares it's his right to have mercy on whom he wills and to have compassion on whom he wills. But here's what you need to think about this text. Mercy and compassion imply the need for mercy and compassion, right? So mercy is not getting what you deserve. In other words, you deserve something bad and you're not going to get it. Mercy. Compassion means you're in a place or a position where you need compassion. You need help. And what God is saying here through Paul um, to Moses, because Paul is quoting here Exodus, he says, it's my prerogative to have mercy on whom I want to and to have compassion on whom I want to. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that my, that, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And so God allows Pharaoh to come to power. He allows him to enslave the Jewish people and treat them harshly. And he's even going to allow Pharaoh to oppose him over and over and over again. Even after plague, after plague, after plague, God allows him to survive the opposition. He allows him to experience God's, if you will, judgment. And then he allows him to reject him uh, after every judgment gets harsher. And so God says, my purpose in allowing Pharaoh to do this is that I would get to display my power and my glory. So then, verse 18, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, people don't get upset about he gets to have mercy on whom he wills, but people do get upset about this other part of verse 18 and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, we have to break down this idea of God hardening individuals. The idea that God puts fresh evil inside of somebody's mind and will and heart in order to oppose him is not biblical. The true case of every human being is that their heart is already hard towards God. Their disposition towards God is one of opposition. Their uh, wanting to come to God is not there. Okay, And so from that place, if God leaves you there, your heart is hardened by God's, if you will, passively allowing you to remain in your rebellion. And so I want to open this up with, um, with one of my favorite theologians, now deceased, R.C. Sproul. He wrote uh, an entire commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith from 1646 to 1647. The Westminster Confession of Faith was created. And in chapter three, section three, under the decrees of God, um, there's this interesting sentence. And then R.C. breaks it down. And I'm going to read some of this for you. It says, by the decrees of God, for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined unto eternal life and others foreordained to everlasting death. And now that chapter three, section three, though, that's a disturbing sentence. I love the way R.C. unpacks it. And so I'm going to read to you some of this. This is from his commentary, as I said, on the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's called The Truths We Confess under chapter three, section three. What about the rest of mankind, R.C. says? Those who perish in their sins, who receive no benefits of this supreme act of divine mercy. How can people who perish in hell 
add to the glory of God? Man, what a good question. This is one of the most difficult concepts for Christians to accept. That God is glorified by bringing judgment on sin and sinners. From a biblical perspective, it's safe to say, though it may be difficult for us to grasp emotionally, that God is glorified by the judgment of the wicked in hell, just as much as he is glorified by the rescue of saints in heaven. Okay? Because one displays his mercy, grace, compassion, one displays his justice, holiness, and righteousness. And so when his attributes are on display, God is glorified. Let's continue. When God's justice is demonstrated, he is glorified because it shows his goodness. Throughout scripture, God's judgment is often manifested or explained in terms of a kind of poetic justice in which he gives people over to their already evil inclinations. In the final judgment, John writes, let the evildoer still do evil, Revelation 22, 11. In his judgment on the non-elect, God gives them over to their sinful desires. A common theme found throughout scripture. God did not need to create fresh evil in Pharaoh's heart to redeem his chosen people. There was already enough evil in Pharaoh's heart to last forever. God needed only to withhold from Pharaoh whatever grace was restraining his wickedness and to allow him his way. That's important. So God doesn't put fresh evil in Pharaoh's heart to harden him. His heart is already hard. All God did was restrain his grace that was keeping him from going even further. So God pulled back his restraining grace and gave Pharaoh his own will, if you will. He, he let him have his own freedom. And, and in Pharaoh's freedom, he resisted God. That's what R.C. is saying here. And I think that's accurate. So let's continue. Such is the natural consequence of our own sinfulness. Reformed theology rejects this form of double predestination, which is often called equal ultimacy. So the idea here of equal ultimacy is in the same way God predestines the elect to heaven, he exactly in the same way predestines others to hell. Okay. We reject that. Uh, at least I reject that. RC rejects that. I don't think that's biblical. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. So the idea there is equal ultimacy. According to this idea, God works positively in the next, in the elect to bring about faith and also works positively in the reprobate to bring uh, or to prevent faith. If this were so, the charge of unfairness would be understandable. Pharaoh was only doing what God was forcing him to do. The Reformation view of double predestination is not this symmetrical positive-positive view, but rather a positive-negative view. So what's a positive-negative view? On the positive, God elects the, the Christian to be saved and to receive mercy, to receive grace. In the negative, he simply allows them over to their own will, to their own hardness of heart, to their own rejection. God allows them to go. This is Romans 1, 24, 26, and 28. He gave them over. He gave them over. He gave them over. So God restrains his grace that would save them and allows them to go their own way. And in so doing, hardens them because his restraining grace is what softens the believer uh, to, to be able to respond to him. 
when God, and continuing with R.C. here, when God made his eternal decrees of salvation and reprobation in light still of the still future fall, his decision to elect some people was based on his knowledge that people would need salvation. Okay, so electing people out of the mass of fallen humanity is presupposing that people needed salvation, a point I made earlier. God's decree of salvation was based on his knowledge of a fallen world or a world that has fallen, contemplating the whole of humanity. God knew that every last one of them would be dead in sin and trespasses, fallen, corrupt, hostile to him, having no inclination toward divine things. Every one of them would be a slave to sin, refusing to have God in their thinking, walking according to the course of this world and the power of Satan. That's Ephesians 2. That is the condition of fallen, corrupt humanity that God saw when he decreed election. Out of this group of rebels, God in mercy elected to save some and to visit them with his special grace of redemption. He positively intervenes in their lives to quicken them from spiritual death and to work faith in their hearts, thereby meeting the condition for salvation. The others he passes over, leaving them in their sin. He does not force them into unbelief, but he knows that unless he intervenes, they will indeed persist in unbelief and end up in damnation. On the mercy side of the ledger, God intervenes in people's lives and brings their salvation to pass. On the other side, he does not intervene, leaving people to their own devices. So there you see... uh, reprobation in the sense of God giving people over to their own wills. He says, you want free will, you have it. And in a sense, God goes against the free will of the believer and he intervenes and he enables them to resist their resistance of him. It's amazing. And so God overcomes resistance in the believer. And this is based on an election before the foundation of the world. Now, as we continue in the Ordo Salutis, we'll get into calling and we'll, we'll talk about irresistible grace. But for now, let's stay with election here and predestination. All right, let's talk practically before we end this up. So practically, remember this podcast is called um, Theology Applied. We're trying to take these high concepts and bring them down to the street so you can walk them out in some fashion and they don't just live in your head. So practically, here's two things, two things. One, Rejoice and rest in God's sovereignty. What what should you do with this? You should relax and rest in God's sovereignty. In other words, the salvation of humanity is not on your shoulders, Christian. And that's good news. If it was up to me to save every person that I met or or God was going to bring me before every person I've ever come in contact with in my life on judgment day and say, they're in hell because of you and they're in hell because of you, they're in hell because of you. I mean, that's terrible. And that's not, that's unbiblical. And so for the Christian, we can rest in that God will save his own and we can rest in his sovereignty that God will save those whom he has elected before the foundation of the world. And he will use us as partners in this great endeavor. And that's, that's the second part uh, of the practicality is that God will use us to save the elect. God will use Christians and sharing the gospel and writing books where people will read and making audio presentations and video presentations like this that people will watch. 
And God uses the gospel as the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1.16. And so we Christians, you Christian, you have the privilege, the blessing to partner with God in getting out the gospel and God will use our efforts to save people. It's not on your shoulders, yet you get to partner with God to save the elect. All right, now, what should we do in light of these truths? Here's some action. Um, we should seek the conversion of individuals. It, we, we should assume that God has elected every single person that you come in contact with. Because we don't know who God has chosen and whom he has not chosen negatively, we should assume that every single person that you know is elect and you should present the gospel to them when you have opportunity to do so, imagining that God is going to save them. Okay, because we don't know who the elect are, we should think of every person as elect. Okay, God may save some people through your witness. It's not you who saves them. It's God who saves them. But he uses you as a means to accomplish his great end. And here's what's so beautiful about predestination. If God uses you to be the means of salvation for his elect, you were also predestined to be the means. In other words, the whole process is laid out by God beforehand. The place you live, the time you live, uh, the, 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 the vocation you have, the gifts and the calling you have, the very place you're at in life at the moment that you're watching this or listening to this, all predetermined by God in his predestination purposes so that you might partner with him in making disciples of all nations, which includes seeking the conversion of people through sharing the gospel. Okay, here's Paul at Corinth. So Paul, uh, in Acts 18, he shows up in that, that Greek-saturated city of Corinth. Uh, this is Acts 18b to verse 11. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized, right? So in in the first century, especially in the book of Acts, there was this immediately upon belief, baptism. Like only in, in the recent decades have we uh, waited for years after conversion to get baptized. In the book of Acts, it's like belief, baptism, belief, baptism. They were one and the same. And so many of the Corinthians believed and were baptized. Verse nine, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision. So Paul has this dream. Paul has this vision and God speaks to him. And he says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Why? Because God uses our speech, however it comes across, recorded speech, written down speech, conversation speech. Go on speaking, Paul. Don't be silent because in so hearing God, in so hearing the gospel, God saves people for I am with you. So number one, why shouldn't you be afraid, Paul? I'm with you. No one will attack you to harm you. So Paul was attacked throughout his, his conversion, especially as he shared the gospel, stoned, left for dead, um, had to escape many plots. And so he says, go on speaking. I'm with you. No one's going to attack you or harm you. And then here's what he says. I have many in this city who are my people. Meaning, I've predestined many in Corinth, Paul. And by your speaking, I'm going to save them. You need to stay here in Corinth, Paul, and you need to speak the gospel and not be afraid to speak the gospel. Why? Because I have many people in this city. 
Now, friends, I think that we should imagine God has many people in our city, whatever city you find yourself. You should imagine this same thing being said to you, even though that would be by implication. I have many people in the city. Insert your name. Go on speaking. I'm going to save them through your witness. I will save them, not you, but I will save them through your witness. Friends, this is so helpful because, again, salvation is not on us, ultimately. We simply partner with God to share the gospel, and he does the saving. And he has people all over the, glo- all over the globe, on all six habit- inhabited continents, that are his people already. They need to hear the gospel so that God might save them. And then verse 11 concludes, And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. All right, now here's, here's a question people ask. How do I know if I'm elect? <laughs> How do I know? And in 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 to 5a, Paul addressing the church in Thessalonica has this fascinating uh, explanation of this question. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers. So we're praying for you. We give thanks for you constantly when we pray. Remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We remember you and we remember your work of faith. We remember your labor and love. We remember your hope in Jesus Christ. We think about you. We remember your faith. For we know, brothers, that's verse four. We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you wait a minute, how do you know that, Paul? How can you say to these Thessalonican Christians that God loves them and that he has chosen them? How do you know that? Verse five, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So what Paul is saying here is, here's how you know if you're elect. When the gospel comes, there's belief, and it's not just words. It's not just, okay. You receive it, you believe it, you embrace it, you want to turn from sin, and you want to turn to this God who will save you. And there's power in the gospel that is being realized in the individual. And that power comes from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who who activates the gospel. Uh, He activates spiritual life out of spiritual death. And then the result is there's full conviction that this is true and that you are saved and that you are a believer. And so let me read that verse five again. Because, how do we know that you're chosen? Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, It's not just the general call that goes out to all people. It just didn't come in word, but it came in power and with the Holy Spirit's power and with full conviction. You believed. In other words, if you're believing today, you can take heart that you are one of the elect. Believe. Keep believing. Keep holding on to God. God will get his uh, believers all the way to the end. That's Philippians 1.6. God who began a good work in us is able to and will complete it. It's a paraphrase, but that's what it says. Now, lastly, last thing we're going to talk about today. How can you confirm your calling or election? How can you confirm it? How how can you maintain the assurance and the confidence that you are one of God's people? Well, in 2 Peter 1, 5 to 11, we learn this. Peter says, for this very reason, this is in verse 3, 
He says, make every effort, make every effort. So the, 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 this very reason he's pointing to verse three, we don't have time, but go back to verse three and you can see the very reason. For this very reason, pointing back to verse three, make every effort to supplement your faith. Faith is that initial trust in Jesus for salvation. Supplement your faith with virtue. So add to faith virtue and virtue with knowledge. Grow in your knowledge. Okay, a life that is lived uh, by the decree of God, the the revealed will of God. Um, Live out that described will, revealed will in scripture, referring back to a former podcast. And then add to that living out the, the, the clear will of God in scripture. Add to that knowledge, grow in understanding. And knowledge, self-control. And self-control, steadfastness, this, this kind of immovableness. And steadfastness, godliness or godlikeness. So you, you build, you build, you build. And, he, and Paul's talking about the building blocks, what they look like. And godliness, brotherly affection. And brotherly affection, love. And so we're building. We're building virtue. And then we're putting on top of it knowledge. And on top of knowledge, self-control. And on top of self-control, steadfastness. And on, on top of steadfastness, godliness. And on top of godliness, brotherly affection. And on top of brotherly affection, love. Now listen closely. If these qualities, notice the if, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former ways. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. I mean, that's a huge claim there, Peter. So that list of building blocks that you add and then continue to practice them. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. That's a that's serious. So how do we make our calling and election sure? He just gave you a list. Some of you love lists. Have at it. <laughs> we don't do the list to be saved. We do the list because we are. And he says, if we continue in that list, continuing to add to the next, to the next, to the next, he says, you'll never fall. For in this way, there will be, you will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That verse 11 is, is confirming your election. Listen, for in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the kingdom, the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So how do we confirm our calling and election? We live out the Christian life. And Peter describes it here with these various terms. And then, um, Verse three, his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And then Paul says for this, or Peter says, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue, knowledge, and so on. So the idea there is faith is the initial salvation conduit. We're saved by grace through faith. Okay. And then after faith, you need to grow. How do you grow? 
adding virtue and then adding knowledge to virtue and adding self-control to knowledge and adding steadfastness to self-control and adding godliness to steadfastness and adding brotherly affection uh, to godliness and then um, love to, to brotherly affection. And then if these qualities are yours and increasing, there's your mission right there. Okay. So add to faith these qualities and let them increase. They'll keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. And as you practice them, he says, you will never fall. And for in this way, in the way I just talked about, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay. So again, to recap, we were looking at the Ordo Salutis or the order of salvation. We only opened up uh, predestination and election. We opened up election in both the negative and the positive and showed that how God is glorified in showing mercy and grace and compassion. And he's also glorified in showing justice and righteousness and holiness. And he doesn't elect the same way for the, the positive and for the negative. Uh, he elects positively and actively with those who are saved. And he, if you will, allows the non-elect to go their own way in their sin. He gives them their free will. He says, have it your way. He says, um, you want this sin, you want this darkness, you love it, continue in it. And in that way, he does not elect them. Okay, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, join us next week where we will continue in the Ordo Salutis and we'll pick up on calling. What does it look like to be called?